You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Professor James Oakes. He is one of the leading historians of 19th century America, and in a series of influential books and essays, He's tackled the history of the United States from the Revolution through the Civil War. His pioneering and popular books include The Radical and the Republican, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and the Triumph of Anti-Slavery, and Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 1861-1865. The latter two garnered, respectively, the 2008 and two. 2013 Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize, top prize in the country, in my opinion. It's an annual award for the finest scholarly work in English on Abraham Lincoln or the American Civil War era. His most recent book is The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. He is an alumnus of Baruch College and he holds MA and PhD degrees from the University of California at Berkeley. He has been on the faculty of the City University of New York Graduate Center since 1997 and the holder of the Graduate School Humanities Chair since 1998. Have I gotten it right so far? So far. Before coming, going to, I should say, C-U-N-Y, he taught at, at, taught at Princeton and Northwestern Universities. Professor Oakes, thank you for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You're highly recommended by none other than Professor Michael Burlingame. Um, How does that make you feel? He's biased. He's a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> Even if I was a lousy historian, he's a good friend. He might stay my recommend. <laughs> we just talked to him about various aspects of the Civil War, but we mostly focused on his book, The Black Man's President. When someone is it's terrific. Yes, absolutely. When someone decides, when a scholar decides to delve into the world of Lincoln, what are the opportunities and, and what are the obstacles? The obstacles, the obvious obstacle is that so much has been written about Lincoln that finding something new to say is not easy. For someone like Michael Burlingame, who is the most indefatigable researcher in the field. That book uh, is the result of an enormous amount of research that came up with information we just didn't know, that I didn't know about, and that he uncovered uh, through his extraordinary delving into the newspaper archives. And that. So that's another way 
of doing it. Or if times change and the reasons we study think the past change with the times, and sometimes you just need to go back over Lincoln and uh, see what he might look like from the t- year 2023 that he might not have looked at from 1923 or 1953. Has Lincoln had his big era of reappraisal like so many other Grant? We're going through Robert, uh, Ulysses S. Grant's right now, Robert E. Lee, obviously Alan Nolan's book, and then um, right. Thomas Connolly's book, The Marble Man. All these folks tend to go through a reassessment. Has Lincoln gone through that? He always he's always going through reassessments. I think I think since the civil rights movement, there has been an increasing focus on, for example, on Lincoln's racial ideas mm-hmm. that weren't part of the way Lincoln scholars wrote before the civil rights movement. And the most recent manifestation of that would be, I think, the the widespread fascination right now with Lincoln's views on colonization, which you would hardly find in books about Lincoln a generation ago, for example. That's, so I think, and that's a function of of the world we live in now. I think you anticipated one of the questions I was going to ask later, so I'll ask it now, uh, without being teleological was there is there was there merit in abraham lincoln's somewhat i would say ephemeral is that the right term embrace of colonizing the slaves once they were freed as a way to give them a fresh start is there any merit to what he was trying to do because a lot of the works that i've read put it down to just simple racism he wanted them out that's the simplistic reduction of it. If you read the person who really introduced that subject into more recent scholarship is Eric Foner in his book, The Fiery Trial. And he doesn't do that with Lincoln's. He doesn't reduce it to Lincoln was a racist and that's what colonization was. So you have to get past that stuff and ask what the serious scholars of Lincoln are saying about him when they talk about colonization. And one of the things that Eric Foner and I agree on is that it has to be understood in the context of his larger understanding of how to go about uh, emancipating slaves and how to get, uh, get slavery abolished. And he always understood at least during the changes. Before the Civil War, the first thing he ever says about colonization is, if I this famous line, if I had all the power in the world, I wouldn't know what to do. My first thought would be to colonize them someplace. But then he rejects it, says, but that's not going to happen. That's completely impractical. Then he goes through a list of things that he could do, and he ends up with gradual emancipation, which is the way northern states did. That's the way it was understood to be done. So you get to the Civil War, and he's trying to He's trying to use every means at his disposal to get the states, as many states as he could, to abolish slavery. And one of the incentives he's offering the states is we will subsidize the voluntary emigration of the freed people if you pass a a law abolishing slavery in your state. So I think it has to be understood. In, and he was offering other things. He was offering a gradual timetable, which he, uh, uh, you know, so, so he was trying to get the states to abolish slavery because at that point, nobody had thought up yet of the 13th Amendment. And the only way to abolish slavery was for a state to abolish slavery. So it's part of his larger project. And it's not just him. It's the way everybody understood slavery would be abolished. Use what mechanisms the federal government has at its disposal to encourage, nudge, coerce maybe the states into abolishing slavery on their own. And when the war comes, he's got a lot more leverage. He can use the club of military emancipation as well as the the, the carrot 
of subsidized colonization. How so hard? It, Go ahead. It's it's got to be understood in that context. It was not a function of his racism. If anything, I would say it's closer to being a function of his anti-racism because he always justified it. When he justified it, it was on the ground, especially in the famous meeting he has with us group of Washington leaders right. in the summer of 1862 when he calls them to the White House. Uh, what he says is, your people are discriminated everywhere in the United States. There's Go to the right. place you're treated best, and you're still not treated equally. Let's find a place where you can go, where you will be treated to all the rights you're entitled to as free people, right? In a way, it's clo- it's more accurate to say that his it was based on a kind of racial pessimism in which he did not think uh, white people in the United States anywhere, even in the place blacks were treated best, were willing to treat blacks as equals. Right. And so I, I think it's if it's anything, it's more like anti-racism than racism that's pu- pushing him in this direction. As a scholar of the time, does it surprise you in any way when you read about it, that particular meeting? other instances where former slaves or abolitionists or both argued that they were Americans and wanted to stay in America. To me, that's one of the most fascinating psyches in any era of American history is this race of people who've been brutalized beyond all imagination, and yet they want to stay. They consider oh, yeah. themselves Americans. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That that goes way back. That goes back at the very least to the to the immediate aftermath of the founding of the American Colonization Society right after the War of 1812. And, and it provoked mass public meetings, especially in Philadelphia, objecting to this organization on the grounds that we were born here. Most of us have ancestors who came here way before your ancestors ever came. Here, and we're not leaving. And that's why there's a, if you wanted to be, there's a way of reading Lincoln's position cynically in that, and I don't mean that, I don't mean that in a cynical way. (laughs) His position was always, it had to be voluntary immigration. He never favored involuntary immigration. He never favored deportation of blacks, right? Well, he knew, he had to know that the overwhelming majority of African-Americans had no intention of leaving the United States. So when you make it voluntary, the question arises, what did he think was going to happen? And to what extent does his public support for colonization, a colonization scheme that is strictly voluntary during the Civil War, when he is trying to cultivate the support of war Democrats who might oppose emancipation, to what extent is this part of the effort on his part to soften up the reaction that might be coming to his impending emancipation proclamation? Does that make sense? Or was that too long-winded? <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me, even though I still, I would say if I was in the audience, I would probably have stood up and go, why do you all want to stay here? You've been treated like dirt from the moment you came here. Most of you came here in chains or your ancestors did. Right. I don't subscribe to the 1619 theory, uh, right. but perhaps I'm not read enough to understand it. But anyway, the idea that someone would stay and they're just, it's almost like some sort of battered wife syndrome where they just don't feel like they could leave. But maybe compared to where they came from or what they knew of Africa or Cuba or Southern America, Central America, the United States still offered the best opportunity for them. You know, there were black immigrationists who made that argument. And one of the things Michael found in that book you referred to, The Black Man's President, was, and he speculates that one of the reasons Lincoln held that meeting was because he was under the impression, based on the pressure he was getting from black immigrationists, that support for colonization would be stronger than it turned out to be. So there were people who were advocating immigration, but I don't think they represented the vast majority. The vast majority of, you can't, the vast majority of African-Americans went about their daily lives the way people go about their daily lives. They went to work, 
they fed their families, they, they raised kids, they went to church, and they didn't as discriminatory as the political and social conditions might have been. You, I, I, It's not necessarily the case that they went through life thinking primarily about how horrible it was in the United States for them and that they needed to get out. Like I said, they lived in black communities. They lived in mixed race communities. They did all the things people do in communities and they were discriminated against. But you could say this. Why would women want to stay in the United States given the way they've been treated? You know, <laughs> why would the you know, Irish want to come here? People live their lives. You know, what people live their lives with in the families and communities that are part of it and the working lives that are part of their daily life. And the discrimination is there, but it may not be the overwhelming fact that they mull over in their heads all the time, that they constantly think about. You teach. It, it will shape their politics. They will always vote in favor of anti-discrimination and things like that and voting rights and all that sort of stuff. But it's not necessarily the thing that drives them day after day after day. You teach and study and have published on. Can I say something? There's a, I don't remember the name of it, but last year, one of the finalists for the Lincoln prize last year was a beautiful book by a a historian or she's retired now named Rita Roberts. It's a collection of letters by African-Americans in the 19th century that makes exactly this point. If you read their letters, their private letters, they fell in love, they went to work, they built lives for themselves. They didn't just spend all of their days thinking about their being oppressed and discriminated against. And I think when you ask the question, why didn't they want to leave? I, I think we underestimate the degree to which most African Americans, at least in the North, made lives for themselves and weren't prepared to leave the United States as opposed to struggle to make the United States a better place. You teach early national history and have published on it. It's a fascinating period, antebellum America. Mm -hmm. Why were we, two questions, in a country famous for compromising, especially back then, why were we unable to find or settle on a compromise that either ended slavery or pushed the conflict off another generation? A and B, why why did the United States voters elect so many and I'm not going to say god awful but I guess I'll say ineffectual presidents during this t- period in the 1840s and 50s when as Lincoln said the tug is going to come usually the United States can find the leader to help lead them out of problems in this case they failed to do it and I'm fascinated by Fillmore, Buchanan, Pierce, Harrison, Taylor, Polk, on all of them being president of the United States when everyone kind of knew, or at least most people knew, bad things were going to happen. I wouldn't say Polk was ineffective. He got what he wanted. He wanted True. Mexico and he got it. He, got, he wanted Texas and he got it. And a lot more besides. Taylor died very soon after ineffectual had he lived things might have been very different because of what he was up to i i don't know by the 1850s the only people who southerners could no longer elect southerners they could only elect pro-slavery northerners right and i i don't they're unsuccessful presidents in the sense that by the 1850s the conflict between the North and the South uh, had not only become irreconcilable, but yeah, it was irreconcilable. I think ultimately you could garner enough votes to, to shove through a fugitive slave law in 1850, but the overwhelming majority of Northerners in Congress voted against it and they got beaten down thanks to heavy pressure from Fillmore. And all of their victories uh, that law, the the Kansas Nebraska Act, the Supreme Court, they're all they're all pyrrhic victories because they all do more damage to the South than the, to the slaveholding forces than you'd think, given the fact that they win. And then they, at a certain point, 
the anti-slavery North just is growing bigger and stronger, and eventually it's strong enough to elect its own president. And once the slave states secede, that anti-slavery majority in the North has complete control of both houses of Congress, and you can do things that you couldn't do otherwise, right? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The, the things we call compromises, like the Missouri Compromise, they, there wasn't much compromising going on. The Northerners voted against that, oh, clearly. And there's a reason the great historian David Potter calls the Compromise of 1850 the Armistice of 1850, because there wasn't much compromising there either. <laughs> they, Douglas, Stephen Douglas had to break every part of it up so that he could get different votes from different coalitions of the Northerners would vote one way and they'd get something passed with a few other votes and the Southerners would vote one way and they'd get something passed with a few other votes beside the Southerners. But there wasn't much compromise going. So it's not clear to me that they ever were able to compromise on some issues. On the two issues they never were able to compromise on were fugitive slaves and the Western territories. You never get a serious compromise on those issues. A few weeks ago, uh, I did a podcast interview with Joel Richard Paul. I don't know if you have heard of him or know him, no. but he wrote a book called Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. Mm -hmm. and of course, slavery is all over this book one way or the other. Was there a chance maybe, and let's say as we get closer to the conflict, were there missed opportunities among American leaders, North and South, uh, to fashion a compromise or an agreement that would have prevented the Civil War? But I certainly hope not. <laughs> <laughs> With Lincoln, the tug had to come. I'm not rooting for the compromisers. And know. there's nothing, there's no main, if we just would have zigged back in 18-whatever instead of zagged, we maybe could have come up with something. The closest I'm willing to go in that direction, because I think the South had been winning long enough and it was time to just, as Lincoln said, put the foot down. The, the furthest I'm willing to go in that direction is to speculate about what would have happened if there hadn't been a civil war, if they had. Would, would slavery have survived uh, for very long? And I can go either way on the answer to that hypothetical question. There are people nowadays, when I talk about the what I call the anti-slavery project, the anti-slavery people imagined the federal government could do, since it couldn't directly abolish slavery in a state. You take all the things it could do, change, fence it in, close off the Western territories, don't return their fugitive slaves, don't protect slavery on the high seas. If it if you're starting from the assumption that the only way slavery can survive is by expanding and you choke it off and don't let it expand, would that project have eventually led to the destruction of slavery? What's what's you know, the phrase path without the civil path of ultimate extinction? Yes. Putting putting slavery on a path of ultimate extinction. Um I can go either way on that. It, the, the, the trajectory of northern economic development was such that the North was only going to get stronger and stronger, and the South was reacting increasingly aggressively to this fact. And it's easy for me to imagine that at a certain point, Northerners would become sufficiently aggressive that the anti-slavery project itself would become more aggressive, like they could ban the interstate slave trade, which would really be a problem. They could do all they they could do other things. They could abolish slavery in every federal facility in the southern states, right? And they could flatly refuse to return fugitive slaves. You know, uh, and maybe they could adopt some serious colonization project that would encourage slaves to, in combination with encouraging them to come to union lines, federal lines, and not be returned, and then say, we can send you to Costa Rica or Panama or someplace yeah. where you can... You know. it's, there's all sorts of ways in which you can imagine the increasing power of the North squeezing the slave states further and further until they do succumb, right? On the other hand, it's the largest, wealthiest slave society in the world. They were never going to give it up. Compromise, I don't think it would have been compromise that would have done it. It would have been defeat. 
It would have been the Democrats retake Congress in 1862 or something like that. But it wasn't going to be. It, uh, there never were compromises that were meaningful, maybe except at the Constitutional Convention. But but Missouri wasn't a compromise. 1850 wasn't a compromise. There was never going to be a compromise during the secession crisis. So uh, I, I think the long-standing historical uh, fixation on finding a compromise that might have stopped the war is, to me, is not something I'm interested in because I don't think it would have happened. It wasn't in the cards. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Professor James Oakes. He is a scholar, award-winning scholar, has written about Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, American slavery, antebellum America, the Civil War. It's what we are discussing today. I'm going to make a statement, and don't laugh at me and don't insult me. You can insult no, you can you can you can insult me. Just don't laugh at me. I don't get this too much. I read about it a little bit on social media just because I follow a lot of Civil War scholars on social media. Mm-hmm. But I will make this statement and you take it on. Slavery did not cause the Civil War. It was one of the causes of the Civil War, but it wasn't the main cause. It was the cause of the Civil War. The North was anti-slavery. North and uh, the majority of Northerners were anti-slavery, and the Southerners were pro-slavery. The majority of Southerners were pro-slavery. There was a fight between pro-slavery politics and anti-slavery politics. And in 1860, for the first time in the history of the world, the leader of a major anti-slavery party took control of the executive branch of the central government. And that was enough. It was the election of an anti-slavery president that caused the secession of the southern, of the slave states. And only slave states seceded. And when I'm encountered by it, I. What is the I, alternative? Are you saying it's for. There's people who say, well, okay, there were still black people who were enslaved up in the north, but wasn't. Oh, seven. That's silly. That's silly. And, and there's a lot. There's a school of thought that it was about tariffs. And my response to all that is, is very simple. I just laugh and go, okay, let's say I stipulate your point. Give me the compromises that were not about slavery. Hey, ta- like tariffs all, were pretty all low. Legis- <laughs> all the, the tariffs, legislation. Right, Go ahead. Right. The tariffs had been reformed in the 1850s, and they were fairly low by 1860. So that, that wasn't really an issue. And in any case, it's not like the tariffs issue is unrelated to slavery. The slave economy is an export-based economy right. by definition, and they don't like tariffs. Whereas the northern economy is industrializing and they want protection of their budding industrial economy. So the northerners are by and large protectionists and the southerners are by and large uh, free traders who don't want tariffs, right? Except maybe the sugar people down in Louisiana and stuff like that. But, But the tariff issue is not unconnected to the way the southern economy was organized around slavery. That's one thing. But it wasn't this. It's not something the secessionists were. They didn't leave because Lincoln was a high tariff guy. You know, they didn't say that. They left because of slavery. They said it. You know. Um, Why do you think? May I ask a question? Why do? And perhaps not among scholars. Just like there's not a lot of, or perhaps any Holocaust deniers among true scholars. But why do, in your mind? Why does this argument linger when it seems about what caused the Civil War and slavery's the hyperbolization of slavery among those causes by people who detract that argument? Why do you think it exists? What's in the American psyche that allows this argument, that fuels this argument onward? There's two different there's two different issues. There's the question when you say slavery caused the Civil War and you ask most historians what caused the civil war and you and they will agree that slavery caused the civil war right and when you ask them to prove it they will cite what the secessionists said right they will say the southern states were slave states and they explained that they were leaving the union to protect slavery so they accept the pro-slavery origins of the war what they don't accept are the anti-slavery origins of the war and that's in real dispute among historians right they so a lot of the resistance to the idea that slavery caused the Civil War is actually coming from mainstream historians who don't believe that the Republican Party was a genuinely anti-slavery party, that Lincoln was a genuinely anti-slavery candidate for president and a genuinely anti-slavery president. 
right? So that's a much bigger problem than the very small group of eccentrics who still say things like the civil war was caused by states' rights or or uh, uh, tariffs. Or something. So where do, may I ask, where do you fall on that Republican Party, Lincoln argument, anti-slavery? No, I think it's there are pro-slavery origins and anti-slavery origins. The reason the slave state seceded when Lincoln was elected is because he was anti-slavery. And if you read, if you read the secessionists who are in a lot of the older historiography are described, even some recent are described as hysterical. Actually, I find their arguments remarkably clear-headed about the anti-slavery project. If we don't leave now, they will shut off. They will not return our fugitive slaves. They will shut off Western territories. We won't be allowed to expand. They'll suppress slavery on the high seas. We won't have a coastwise slave trade. They might even suppress, try to regulate the interstate slave trade. They're going to abolish slavery in Washington, D.C., right? They're going to do all these things, and we better get out because that's just the beginning, right? That's They understood exactly what the anti-slavery forces were and, and what they stood for. And I think that position was just that anti-slavery position was just getting stronger and stronger. And the Republican Party presented Northern voters for the first time with a politically viable anti-slavery platform that was sufficiently persuasive to get them presidency and when the slave states seceded control of both houses of Congress. They were an anti-slavery party. That's what the Republicans were. They were an anti-slavery party. It's the reason the Democrats said they were a sectional party, because Mm -hmm. there is no anti-slavery party anywhere in the South. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is award-winning and influential American historian, James Oakes. Professor Oakes, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire most? It's tough. <laughs> Choosing it's between tough. Uh, Larry Bird and uh, Oliver P. Uh, Morton? <laughs> it's, 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 I, was, I wasn't going to say Larry Bird. I was going to say Oliver P. Morton. <laughs> <laughs> I admire Larry Bird, but... <laughs> Why more? I lived in Chicago, so I was. Oh, oops! I was, it was sorry. Michael Jordan all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, Morton to me is—he's not the the greatest Hoosier statesman. To me, that would be Richard Luger, but Morton would be second in my view. How did Indiana Governor Oliver P. Morton, who was a senator and then switched gigs with I think Henry Lane, who was elected governor, and Lane right. became a senator, and. Right. Morton was elected senator and became governor. How did Oliver P. Morton work with Lincoln and the government? I really believe that Indiana punched above its weight when it comes to contributing to the defeat of the Confederacy. He certainly did because he held the legislature in check to, to some extent and prevented it from uh, from resisting the war effort in full. In full. That may be one of the reasons. It, when you say it punched to get, uh, above its weight, what do you mean? It had more influence? Indiana or, typically, yeah. for 10 years ago, we had the fourth largest National Guard in the country. Uh-huh. In the thir- we're in the 30s in terms of population. That uh-huh. Indiana was, despite Southern Indiana, really being a hotbed of Confederate sympathizers, that Hoosier troops contributed to numerous victories. They were stalwart supporters of Lincoln throughout the war. There are mm-hmm. always hiccups. Indiana, I can say, is extremely proud of its role in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever, you were just here, you said if not, a few months ago, you probably saw the Monument Circle, the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. Uh, how did Indiana contribute? I'll just ask a general question. Indiana's contribution was critical. What difference did Indiana make based on your knowledge? 
Wow, that's tough because I don't usually think about individual states in those terms. And I don't, it's not that I don't think about Indiana, it's that I don't think about any particular state in that way. It was two Hoosier soldiers, was it not, that found Lee's Lost Order, number 191? Okay. <laughs> um, you got me stumped there, I'm afraid. Oh. I, I didn't mean to stump you. I just know that Indiana is very proud of how it performed during the Civil War mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. call to arms. Mm -hmm. Okay. But is that different from Illinois or Ohio? Are they not also very proud of? We don't care about them. <laughs> <laughs> we only care about Indian. Lincoln, but Lincoln's Lincoln gave a talk in <laughs> Illinois. I guess it was Champaign Urbana, which I somebody asked me about northern racism, and I said, "Listen, Illinois." supposed to be the like the most racist state in the north and everybody in illinois yelled out no it was indiana <laughs> <laughs> now you'll find a lot of hoosiers who probably say the same thing lincoln lived here for several years as he traveled from kentucky to illinois right. so there's a lot of lincoln lore here in the state no that's right uh, the fort wayne museum collected a lot of that stuff how did we get we interviewed edward acorn I don't mm -hmm. know if you've read his books. He wrote a book on the 1860s. Yeah, he just published a new book yeah, on the convention. Did, yeah, that's we interviewed him about that, and we also interviewed him about his book, Every Drop of Blood, about Lincoln's second inaugural address. Mm -hmm. uh, how did we get, I'm just going to ask this question. I can't think of another way to ask it. How did the United States get so lucky that a relatively obscure, although albeit successful, lawyer, two-time losing Senate candidate who only spent two years in the United States House of Representatives. How did we get so lucky to get Abraham Lincoln to produce him at that time? Well, we were lucky. We were very lucky. Uh, and if you read Acorn's recent book, you see it was luck, but it was also very skillful management on the part of Lincoln supporters, and he was as down home and folksy as he could be. He was also an extremely shrewd politician, right? and he positioned himself and consciously positioned himself uh, in a way that made him appeal to a larger, a larger block of Republican voters than any other candidate would have been able to do. He wasn't. He didn't have the radical reputation that people like Chase and and Seward had. Even though his positions weren't fundamentally different, he wasn't as conservative as Bates, things like that. And he came from the West, which made him attractive in states they needed to win that they hadn't won in eighteen fifty six and things like that. Part of it was he was in the right place at the right time. Part of it was his shrewdness, um, but. In the final analysis, shrewdness and being in the right place at the right time uh, don't detract from his greatness as president. I mean, he was just he was just a really great president. In a ways lot of it. That, Go ahead, please. No, it was just the way I. Uh, a lot of what. A lot of that greatness as president does come down to his, he really had his finger on the pulse of Northern public opinion. He knew how far he could go in supporting anti-slavery and eventually black voting rights and like that without, and he knew how to do it in ways that would alienate the fewest people uh, that he needed to maintain in a coalition that would sustain itself long enough to win the war. Right? I think uh, as much as I admire someone like Frederick Douglass, I think his criticisms of Lincoln during the war were in many ways unfair, that he, uh, uh, that he wasn't noticing what Lincoln was doing. He was focusing too much on what he thought Lincoln should be doing that he wasn't doing. And, and 
it's uh, it's actually a bit of a conundrum for me something i've never been able to quite wrap my head around the degree to which radicals then and historians now have trouble noticing what lincoln was actually doing and tend to focus when i was in indiana indianapolis and i gave a talk and a very prominent scholar who i'd never met came to the talk and he raised his hand after the talk and said frederick douglas said lincoln had the slows <laughs> my response was so what I love Frederick Douglass, but just because Frederick Douglass said Lincoln has the slows, is that evidence that Lincoln had the slows? Is You have to look at what Lincoln was doing. Don't call up all the critics, because I could line up a bunch of Southern Confederates who are noticing everything Lincoln is doing and denouncing him as a red, thirst, bloodthirsty Jacobin, right? And I wouldn't use their characterizations of Lincoln as evidence of what Lincoln was doing any more than I would use anybody's characterization of Lincoln, unless I said first, here, let me show you what Lincoln was doing, and here's somebody who got it right. But Lincoln was, impatience is part of all political societies and all the political processes, and so I can understand them wanting to move things, but it would be fair to say move things more quickly. Would it be fair to say, however, that Lincoln could only move at the pace of the Union Army? Yes, but he could also only move at the pace that Congress set. And I think we underestimate the degree to which Congress has to pass a confiscation act. And before Lincoln, two days later, will issue the first emancipation order on August 8th. 201861, right? Lincoln, the Congress passes a second confiscation act. And the next week, Lincoln goes to his cabinet meeting and with a draft of the Emancipation Proclamation that says, by the authority given to me by Congress under the second confiscation act. And it's there again in the, uh, the preliminary proclamation in September, right after Antietam. He says, by the authority granted to me by Congress. So some of it is Congress. Some is is he's going by what Congress is allowing him to do. He's sometimes he's pushing further than what Congress is allowing him to do. And so I think what explains his timing is to some extent what's happening in the on the battlefield. He says quite explicitly, uh, Antietam was the victory. I I swore to I, I said to my maker that if we won, if the Confederates would turn back at Antietam, I would do this, right? So we know that it's, to some extent, the battlefield. So all of these factors go into the timing. The question is whether that timing was... <laughs> slavery has been in existence in what are the, the United States for 250 years when he's elected president. There have been 30 Congresses come and gone without any attacks on slavery. There have been 15 presidents, none of whom did anything to undermine slavery. Right. Lincoln takes office and within 18 months issues the preliminary proclamation. Is that 18 month period such an extraordinary long period of time that we have to scratch our heads about what took him so long? It doesn't. It, it, the, the, I, there's something wrong with that question. The question, if you're going to ask a question, the question is, why did he do it? Not why did he take so long to do it? But if you're going to put a time thing on it, then the question should be, why did he go so fast? Why, within such a short period of time, is he declaring the emancipation of three million slaves? Let me make another declaratory statement for your review okay. or grading. Okay. Frederick Douglass is the most important and impactful American, excuse me, African-American in our country's history. Well, far be it from me, I wrote. That's what I'm asking you. Frederick Douglass. <laughs> and I, have, I stand behind no one in my admiration for Frederick Douglass. So I will, I'm perfectly happy to go as far as to say he is certainly one of the most important African Americans in American history. I might even be willing to say he's the most important African American in 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> Whether he's more important than, I don't know, Martin Luther King, I don't know. Sure, I don't have a problem with somebody saying that. I would phrase it differently just to protect myself if I say <laughs> one of the most important. So somebody can't come back and say, what about Martin Luther King? 
what what made Frederick Douglass besides his I'm going to probably answer my own question. So forgive me. Besides his courage and his intellect and his stubbornness in some ways, what made Frederick Douglass stand out so enormously during this time period? He, to me, I think he's on the Mount Rushmore of the foremost important Americans of the 19th century, but you know him a little better than I do. Here I'll take, I, I think David Blight was right to describe what he was doing in his biography, in his great, great biography of Frederick Douglass, as that he was writing the biography of a writer. Right? And I, I think it's, when we talk about his intellect, we're really noticing the intellect in his writings and his speeches right? and, and his ability to articulate complicated you know sentiments in lucid passionate prose on the greatest issues of the day is just unparalleled absolutely unparalleled he could be frustrating he didn't have the most immaculate private life he didn't pay enough attention to his children we had terrible things to say about indians and things like that. He's not a perfect human being. There is no such thing as a perfect human being. But he starts, his career begins in the 1840s, and it lasts to the 1890s. And he's on the right side of every major issue confronting the United States, just about every, and he's not just on the right side, he's a forceful advocate for the right side of some of the most important issues in a 50-year span of time. There are very few people last that long and are well into their advanced age joining women's rights conventions to support women's suffrage in the 1890s. It's quite remarkable. People give Daniel Webster, you mentioned Daniel Webster, is a famous speech, you know, one or two famous speeches, but Douglas just gave brilliant speech after brilliant speech. There's just, and nothing Daniel Webster was considered one of the great orators of the 19th century or compares to anything, any of Douglas's great speeches, the 4th of July, the 1876 speech, the what the Negroes, the Civil War speech advocating black enlistment, things like that. Just remarkable. Scholarship, academics for the last, and I haven't, I confess to not knowing, um, I know a little bit of the historiography of this, but not all of it, have been pushing against the quote unquote great man theory of history. Mm -hmm. This knight on a charger comes in and uh, with regard to Lincoln is the, are we in danger of switching from giving him too much credit for ending slavery to not giving him enough credit for ending slavery. I don't think there is one we out there. I think some people give him too much credit and some people don't give him enough credit. I think I'm not instinctively a great man historian. No, I think Lincoln was our greatest president. But when I think when I think of Lincoln, I think of him, as I said earlier, he was at the moment, he responded to the moment in ways that very few, I can't think of anyone else who could have responded as effectively as he responded to the moment, but he's responding to the moment. And so he, he wants in early 1862, Wendell Phillips and Moncure Conway visited <laughs> him in the White House. And there's a similar there's a similar story about Lyndon Johnson talking to on the phone to Martin Luther King, where King is pushing him for this Voting Rights Act. And he says, go out there, yell at me, put put the wind at my back, create the pressure I need to go to Congress and get this law passed. And Lincoln says exactly the same thing. He understood that 
you know, in a way he could be moved in a in the right direction in a way that somebody like Andrew Johnson could never be moved in the right direction. But he knew that he had to be moved, right? It was he understood the context in which he was operating. So that and it's that context that makes me resist. I, I, for example, wouldn't call him the great emancipator. For example, I think that's too much. Um, even though I think he was the greatest president, and I think he's been overly denigrated for his role. People don't appreciate adequately his role in getting us to the Emancipation Proclamation and then getting us to the 13th Amendment. No. But I still think it just took a lot more than Lincoln. You mentioned the Union Army. I mentioned Congress. There's all sorts of his relationship to the governors, like Oliver P. Morton was, he knew how to sustain that relationship so that the political winds wouldn't against him could be kept held in check. And, and Seward's handling of the international affairs is phenomenal. Gets better over the course of the war. Yeah. <laughs> after Trent, after the Trent affair. <laughs> yes. Charles Francis um, Adams in Great Britain right, does right, a right, fabulous right, job. Right, right, right. Let me ask you one more question before we get to sure. the five questions we ask all of our guests. Oh, boy. I, wish I can't, I uh, I can't re resist an opportunity. I've got a Lincoln Scholar, award-winning, revered Lincoln Scholar. What did you think of the movie Lincoln? Oh, I admired it. I was, uh, at a purely aesthetic level, I thought Daniel Day-Lewis was remarkable. I never would have imagined somebody getting Lincoln in a way that I found plausible, the way he did. It's really remarkable. I was very pleased that it had much, there was much less Doris Kearns Goodwin in it than there was Tony Kushner. Kushner got the, the screenwriter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he wrote it. And there's a there's like a paragraph in her book. If they he the film thanks her book and says it's based on the book, but there's some part of paragraph in the book. It was Kushner, who read hundreds of books about Lincoln and understood the point I was making earlier, that Congress is absolutely crucial to this process. And Lincoln and Seward are going to do what they can to make sure that when it comes to that final vote. They'll have enough votes. So even I, I think he got the political process. He got the terms of the debate in ways that no other book on the Civil War, no other film on the Civil War quite got, I think. So let me go along with it, you on that completely. The the thing that besides the individual performances, obviously Sally Field, I thought, captured sweet Mary Todd Lincoln as well as anyone could. But for someone like me who has worked in politics for decades, still does so, pays attention to politics, finds it, the process, both fascinating and frustrating. The part that I loved about the movie was the fact that he, that Spielberg and Lewis and Kushner portrayed Lincoln as a political, a diehard, hyper political animal. It just right. comes through. That's the part where this is right. how you demystify someone. You're like, okay, right. well, I need this vote. We're not right. going to give a speech. We're going to give you a job. They implied more corruption than was actually than we can actually demonstrate, which I, I think is a mistake. I wasn't entirely satisfied with the Thaddeus Stevens portrayal. I think it it in certain ways talk about Congress, right? He's the floor manager of the Republicans in Congress from day one. And he is an absolutely stunningly brilliant floor manager. And he comes to us in the historiography as this radical, most radical of all the radicals and stuff like that. But he too was an extraordinary politician and wheeler and dealer and knew, like Lincoln, knew what he could get and what he couldn't get out of Congress at any given point. Even though it might not have been, if for Lincoln, it might have been a little more than he wanted. For Thaddeus Stevens, it might have been a little less than he wanted. But they were People who of high anti-slavery principle who also practice the art of the possible, and they combine 
both of them, I admire for their combination of sticking to their principles while getting done what they could get done. If and I think could, the movie gets that. Agreed. If, if you could have your students or your readers or whomever, your podcast audience, understand one thing about Lincoln, what would it be? Like, if you understand this one thing, then you'll understand the kernel of who Abraham well, I think it's Abraham what was. I think is what I just said. I think that being a practical, even pragmatic politician is does not preclude being a principled politician. That, that Lincoln combined those two things in ways that, and not just, it's not that he had principles, lots of people have principles. He had the right principles. He basically <laughs> had the right principles, and he and he knew how to stick to those principles while managing an enormous political system that politics that very few people could have handled with such effectiveness as he did. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast on the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Professor Oaks, are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first job? First job as a teenager mowing lawns or my sure. first real job? Either. Uh, probably mowing lawns and shoveling snow <laughs> for <laughs> 50 cents or something. <laughs> number no. number two what was your uh, first concert oh my first concert i'm not sure i remember i'll tell you one thing i went to woodstock you were at woodstock i was at woodstock yeah for every day for each day or yeah yeah so you yeah. saw hendrix play the star Spangled banner yeah to the extent that i was sentient yeah yeah. I hated it. I, that I was such an, I'm sorry. Are there other questions I, that we should be I, asking I, here? I, no, I hated it. I didn't. I hated it. I you was, hated Woodstock? Yeah. It was crowded and everybody was drunk or high and there was mud and the bathrooms were disgusting and it was rainy and the music was good. But, you know, it wasn't. I, 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 I'd rather sleep in a hotel than. We're going to get to another question here, and the answer to this question I'm going to ask you in a few minutes, several people have had as their answer, Woodstock. So, uh, number okay. three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Whoa, any book at all. Oh, my gosh. There's a his I, I have to go to with a history book, and I suppose I would stick with my the hero of my youth, uh, Richard Hofstadter's The American Political Tradition and the Men Who Made It. It's dated. I disagree with a lot more of it than I used to. The Lincoln chapter is frustrating, things like that in so many ways. But it's a beautiful book. It's a remarkable book. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, and it ain't Woodstock, which event would you choose? Could I, if I was witnessing, could I be a fly on the wall and know what's being said? Yes, you're right I there. You're standing there. I think maybe the cabinet meeting when Lincoln introduces the draft, the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. And I would say, where is this coming from? <laughs> what made you do this? Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat about anything, whom would you choose? It wouldn't be someone famous. Unless who Adam Toos is? Yes. Yeah. It would be somebody like Adam Toos. Somebody that I currently learn lots and lots from and want to pick the brain or something like that. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker 
with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Professor James Oakes. He is a scholar of the 19th century, especially Lincoln, Douglas, and the Civil War and slavery. I just ordered one of your books. I can't wait to read it. Professor Oakes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been lots of fun. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.